0: Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is season two, episode nine. Today, I'm speaking with Prudence Priest, who is a high priestess of Amaranth energies since 1971, and she is a prominent figure in the pagan community. With over five decades of experience, she's held various leadership roles within organizations like Freya's Folk, the American Vinland Association, and the Covenant of the Goddess. A champion for heathen and feminist causes, Prudence actively advocates for inclusivity and social justice within paganism. Her dedication extends beyond activism, as she also translates sacred texts and creates artistic expressions through watercolor painting. Currently residing in California, Prudence continues to inspire and guide others in their pagan journeys. You can learn more about her experience and travels through her blog, Prudent Travels. I'm now going to take you to my conversation with Prudence Priest. Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I have the pleasure to be speaking with activist, priestess, blogger, artist, and more, Prudence Priest. Prudence, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. Happy to be here.
0: Now, for the people that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about your childhood and what sparked your interest in paganism ultimately?
1: Well, uh, the easiest answer to that is I had psychic abilities when I was young. And yeah. my dad could hold up fingers behind his back. And I never missed unless I got tired of playing that game. So and he he loved me entertaining the bridge club, you know, doing stuff like that. And by the time I was eight, I had uh, in the third grade, I guess that's eight or nine. Uh, People were calling me a witch then, and I didn't really know what they were talking about. I'm eight or nine years old, but I I took it to heart and continued to explore it. My uh, Aunt Margie was friends with Blackstone the Magician, and I saw him slice my mom in half when I was nine and started screaming. Oh, my God. you know, but, uh, um, you know, that also got me interested in, you know, magic with a C, I guess, or stage stage magic. And uh, to this day, I, I have several friends who are stage magicians, including one of my coven members. But another thing, my other friend, uh, my best friend when I was little, we had lots of ivy growing in our backyards. And a lot of it was poison ivy. And we used to sit in our various backyards together and talk to the fairies. And everybody thought we just had imaginary friends. But the best thing about that is to this day, I'm not allergic to poison ivy. I remember having one of my other friends over because they wanted to see the fairies. I said, well, you got to sit under this oak tree by all the ivy and He broke out in, you know, to his eyes in uh, poison ivy, so he didn't do that again. And I also, um, to a certain extent, it's hereditary. My maternal grandmother is a Transylvanian gypsy, and on my father's side, I'm Prussian. So that's part of my Lithuanian heritage.
0: Have you been able to go back to Transylvania at all?
1: Yes, I went once, uh, but I could not locate my uh, relatives, and it's in Romania, and even when I went, it didn't dawn on me that they were named after Rome, but there were statues of Romulus and Remus all over town, and uh, statues to King Carol, and... um, I did go up to Transylvania. I was trying to re, you know, do some genealogy research, but I was only in Bucharest for a week or in the country for a week, and I just couldn't find anybody to follow through. One of my cousins supposedly has some information, but she can't find it. We know how that goes, but uh, I'm still working on it. It's on my to-do list.
0: Were there any specific people or experiences in your life that shaped your spiritual path when you were young?
1: Well, again, somewhere between eight and 12, um, I was at a Presbyterian church, and they were having some kind of fair, and they had some lady who read your poems. And she told me I would live to be at least 86. So I'm holding her to that. (laughs) And then when I was 12 with my best friend, Kyle, um, the Episcopal church had, uh, I don't know, like a rummage sale and a a cake sale and uh, like little festivals like they used to have. And Mm -hmm. they had a cake walk, which was like musical chairs. And there were, 12 spaces on it i won it seven times in a row and they wouldn't let me play anymore and kyle and i were like so sick from eating all the cakes and finally they gave us a giant bag of movie popcorn and they were like that they couldn't fit you know they they like i said i had a reputation of being weird since i was about seven or eight so of course i pursued it um I consider myself somewhat of a dilettante, but I've had a long time to do a lot of things. So I'm still working on it. After, you know, my early childhood, um, when I was still in high school, that's when I took up my first art was um, cold peppers and studying herbs. And I actually went to the original cold peppers in 72. Oh, and wow. That was wonderful. But if you read all the way through Culpepper's herbal, at the very end, he said, only those who practice astrology are fit to practice practice physic or oh, medicine. Wow. And that's what sparked my interest in doing um, herbs and astrology, both. And also, when I was in college, when we moved to Dayton, uh, by that time, I'd, I'd had a, been in a coven for three or four years. And over the years, since there's uh, something called the cult of the Vala, which most people claim doesn't exist, but, you know, I, I know it does. And I studied under three other Vala's over the years. I had a Russian woman uh, who uh, helped me a lot, and she was the one that was into herbs. And then I in the 70s, I was teaching astrology at a unity church in Dayton, and there was a black woman there named Eva Patrick, and uh, she taught me a lot about um, not quite voodoo, but deep south magic and, and principles and she gave me the most beautiful, I still have it I can go get it and show you to you, it's from the 18th century and it's a wrought iron candelabra wow. for using for um, rituals and I learned a lot from her and a, a great story I'd like to tell about her is every year at yule they do some reenactment of the or i guess at easter about the betrayal of christ and Mm -hmm. she was always judas and and she was a (laughs) black woman right so uh, i was asking her once when we were having our talks i go you know why why do you do this or you know why would you be judas in this um what do they call them mystery plays i guess and she goes Somebody had to turn the prick in. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see I had great teachers. And the third one had turned out to be my landlady in Dayton. I lived on the Stillwater River in a cabin that was built by shakers or, you know, it was all wood. The ceilings, the walls, everything. And uh, it was a beautiful little house. And the lady that rented it to me lived next door. And she had about five acres across the street that she would rent out as garden plots from spring to fall. And of course, I rented a couple. And the reason we became friends, she was growing real opium poppies for one thing in the 70s. Made her popular. And she showed me how to do those. But we were both out one day it was weird i kept seeing her in the garden at the same time she was out there like we would plant our tomatoes when the moon was in aries or we would plant our corn you know we we would be both planted extensively by the moon and that's be how we became friends and she taught me uh, a lot too uh, about you know plants and correspondences and Uh, what, what they were good for and the times to plant them. And, again, that's another thing I still use astrology for. I mentioned that studying astrology, well, I had already, by the time I started studying astrology in the late 60s, and... When we moved to Dayton, I was teaching astrology classes, again, at that Unity Church in Dayton. And this man showed up at one of my classes, and he lived up there. This was north of Dayton. And he was curious that I was doing an astrology class. And he said his son lived in Dayton, and he was there. And after he listened to one of my lectures he offered to teach me more about astrology and that's where I got my second degree in astrology working with him and his name was Carl Payne Toby and he had, um, he used to have a half-page Sunday newspaper column in the 60s and 70s in national newspapers. I actually could get his column in the Dayton daily news. I'm trying to show you the book and the only book he ever wrote was the astrology of inner space, but I still use it. And the reason I had a copy to show you, is because I ordered it for one of our uh, new coven sisters. Oh, nice.
0: Now, How did you end up leading Amaranth Energies? What challenges and rewards came from being a high priestess of that group?
1: Oh, boy. Um, Well, I have to go back to high school. Uh, In around 67, 68, we were taking an after-school Greek class, and the professor was fabulous. The sad news is he got busted at the Greyhound bus station for soliciting uh, men back when that was really illegal. And we protested a lot, but, you know, he's, we still didn't have him teaching us anymore. But he had us read Edith Hamilton's book on Greek mythology, And the first page, the introduction says, nobody worships the Greek gods anymore. And Anna and I looked at each other and said, why not? And we started our first coven based on um, the teachings of Pythagoras. And we had plenty of resource material, especially from the original Greek. And we called our coven Idioplastos. Which is Greek for the power of thought. Well, after I graduated, my family moved to Dayton, Ohio. And of course, um, you know, we went off to college and all that. So in 1971, uh, around uh, Valentine's Day, we started uh, with two or three of my friends who were also interested in magic, I I started Amaranth Energies. And at the time, I had had, I don't know if you remember these, but there used to be head shops in the 70s. And we sold water beds and astrology books and incense. And I always had coffee and tea in the front and chairs to sit in. And that's how I met a lot of people who late, later became um, interested in the coven and a lot of them became members. and then in 1978 we actually came out of the broom closet and did a summer solstice that was written up in the newspaper and uh, you know published with us in our robes in my backyard you know doing a summer solstice ritual. And so we we were out then, and then more people started asking about us. And I think I hived off at least two other um, coven's just from in Dayton because we were getting pretty big. Um, and that's how I, or that's how I ended up leaving Amaranth Energies. And challenges and rewards. Well, it's always a challenge doing anything, getting up to go to work in the morning's a challenge. True. But our coven is very part of the Pythagorean tradition is it has five degrees. And the first degree is called Ascoltantes, which literally means listener. So it was more like we didn't take anybody in, even for a first degree. Well, which would be the Uh We we would accept them. The ritual for that was basically a paganing or a dedication to the old gods. And from that point on, uh, you had to learn how and what we were doing. But we didn't want any of the ascultantes, had no right to tell any of us what to do because they're new and they don't know anything. Um, and, you know, once they are no longer a uh, uh, uh first degree, well, then they can have all the input we want. And the covenant is basically uh, what I consider the best form of government. It's a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah. And Uh, We started that in 71, and uh, in 2021, we had our 50th anniversary, and we have four generations of uh, witches in our coven, and we have never had anybody leave after they got their second degree. I had one woman once, you know how some of the newbies like to go around and collect badges? Yeah. She kept She kept asking, well, when am I going to get initiated and get my second degree? And I go, I won't mention her name. Anyway, I told her, every time you ask, it's going to be another year and a day. And she (laughs) could not stop asking. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And finally, she gave back her necklace and said, I can't do this. And, you know, we're still friends, actually, but. Uh, you know, being in our coven was not for her. Although, like I said, we take a lot of um, uh, beginners and Pythagoras did the same thing. And one of the things I really like about Pythagoras is he actually would teach women, which was not common. And his wife was uh, reported as being the first vegetarian. Oh, wow. And, uh, Greek tradition. And we also honor Michaela, who was the mother of the twins. And she's the one who was first credited with drawing down the moon. And we still oh, wow. do it the way she did it. But those are hard things to find. But again, I've had 50 years to look them up. So then, uh, oh, an early form of my uh, activism, I guess I went yeah. to the same high school that Jerry Rubin did, and oh, wow. uh, and that um, Rod Serling went to. That's the other famous alumna, and um, Marty Balin from the Jefferson Airplane. And of course, since I was in high school in the '60s, we were active with that. But I remember in our my, either my junior or senior year, we all got there. I had a group even then of, you know, people that, you know, we all hung out together. They were part of the outer circle of my coven. There were about 20 of us. And we showed up at the school at dawn. Raz climbed the flagpole and put up a crown with the ribbons. And we danced the maypole at dawn. And then we all ran off to go have coffee and donuts somewhere, and we came back to school at, you know, I guess 8 in the morning, and yeah. teachers and students were standing out there just staring at the Maypole, wondering what the hell happened. <laughs> and none of us confessed, and none of us got caught, but we, we had fun doing a, a Maypole back in the 60s, which is pretty good cred. So. And and that was a reward. Just doing that, that's a that was very personally rewarding.
0: I want to talk to you next about your time with Freya's folk and the American Vinland Association. What are some of your most memorable experiences you've had during this time?
1: Oh, okay. Well, the reason I inherited Freya's folk when I moved to California in ninety-one. Steve McNallan, who is an out-and-out racist and currently runs a whites-only church with a big sign on it saying whites only up in some small town in Northern California, Um, we were going to lectures in um, Oakland or Berkeley, borderline, it was on San Pablo somewhere at this insurance agent's office, and Uh, We attended a lot of lectures and he attracted people who were interested in the Norse uh, religion. And he wasn't racist, but at the time, like Steve McNallan showed up and he's always nice to everybody and tells them what he wants to hear. But um, I mean, they had some really racist and horrible stuff going on once you got to know him. And in, Steve used to publish a magazine called The Rune Stone, and I used to produce it for him, but I would do all the paste up and layout and, and send it to him, and then he would send it out. And at the time, I had joined the Vault Kindred, which was run by a man named Buzz Wagner, and he was retired from uh, AT&T. AT&T. And he built an awesome little German-style looking fortress house, you know, with stones, round stones up to the windows of the first floor and a highly arched roof. And he had, I think, 160 acres up in Camptonville. And I stayed there one summer. But anyway, one time, this would have been around 83, we buzz got a copy of the rune stone from Edred, and it had this um racist flyer put in it and buzz had been supporting the afa um financially as well to help them publish all this stuff and he had a fit and we had a fit oh yeah And, that you know, because I'm doing all this work and he's sending out, um, I'm trying to remember how bad it was, but it it was pretty bad and it was very racist. And, um, you know, like white people are the only ones fit to worship the Norse gods, which is total BS. But anyway, (laughs) um, so... Uh, basically he excommunicated us but we were happy not to have anything to do with him anymore and that's when I started publishing Egg Brazil which I did for like 25 years so the the first memorable experience with uh, Frey's folk what I got out of that was after we parted with them he actually he's been divorced and remarried like three or four times Steve McNallan and yeah. his first wife who he abandoned and her two children she's the one that gave me the Freya's Folk banner and I've carried it on to this day so uh, she had made like a beautiful banner and I still have it and uh, the American Vinland Association came out of my time after being in the troth and the Troth was founded by Edward Thorson. He was the first steersman. And James Chisholm, both in Texas, was the second steersman. And I was the third steerswoman, or the first steerswoman of the Troth and the third. And we used to call ourselves from the Eddas, like high, just as high. And I was third. So that was kind of cute. And... I started at, after, uh, well, we, we'd start, and they showed up in an oaster, we did out by the ocean at Rodeo Lagoon or some one of those beaches near Rodeo Lagoon. And they all came out from Texas and Jim handed me a mailbox full of, you know, the subscribers or the members. And there were only 40 people. This was in the 90s who were members of the troth at that time. And and although meanwhile, Edward had written several books about it. And so had uh, James Chisholm. Anyway, when they turned it over to me, they all cheered me. Uh, every uh, big name he then was there, including Freya Oswin and, you know, people from out of the country, the guy from... Fire and Ice in England, and somebody from Sweden. There were just all kinds of people there. And um, I took over, and in three years, I took them from 40 people or 40 members to 400. And, of course, in any organization, that's when the politics start. Okay, and um, my, my own board of directors, there was a lot of, Backbiting and backfighting, um, but anyway, one of my best friends—they—they they brought things to a vote to oust me as Steerswoman, and my friend Andy Biggers and Kennedy said, "Prudence, I'm going to vote to uh, throw you out too because you have no—I, you have no business dealing with these jerks." And I'm like, "Okay, I agree." So then. CL Hankins who passed last year he set yeah. up the American Vinland Association and incorporated it and in everything and uh CL and gambling and you know half my board of directors quit with me too including Andy who had was you know the deciding vote but anyway they they all left and they all joined the AVA now the AVA just kind of died out on on its own, but we did do for about five or 10 years, we did train a lot of elders and started a lot of uh, Hoffs and kindreds all over the country and even in some foreign countries. And I had this wonderful test I used to give to the elders. And this guy had one of the best pagan names ever. He was from Louisiana, and he called himself Goot Rhyme Bambi Breaches. Isn't that a great pig name? <laughs> <laughs> and he yeah. had just the best test. And I just you know that's what I sent out to people, and uh, you know worked with them if they went for elder training. So I'm responsible for a lot of. Kindreds. Uh, what else did we call them? Hoffs was, uh, you know, if you had a temple or a place to work and um, just kindreds and, and all different kinds of groups, as well as trained a lot of priests and priestesses, or at least set them on the path. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, again, under the rewards um and the most memorable experiences were doing uh, Ravenwood for 25 years, which was always a good time up on top of Mount Tam. And the Osteras that we did at the beach. We would uh, build a Viking ship, small, but still a model of a Viking ship. And we would have a funeral for winter at Spring Equinox. And there's still a oh, group nice. in- Canada that makes their own little ship you know they, it's like paper mache it's like two feet wide and they put it in a river in Flesherton Ontario and set it on fire and it, it's, a, it's a great ritual I think <laughs> that's in one of my videos somewhere and uh, again my most memorable experiences were doing weddings and other rites of passage and uh, basically growing or training elders in the lore. And another example of really memorable, after the 89 earthquake, and this is going back to the Greek part of us, we were technically Greco-Norse, but I remember Steve McNallan asked me one time, he goes, you're from your traditions, Greek. What are you doing at a Viking uh gathering, and I go, you drink mead, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's, we've never, I've never had a problem with uh, cross in the world. Only the Norse and the Greek have the concept of the fates or the Norns. So it wasn't hard, and I know they cross, what, what do you call that? they, they, Dealt with each other a lot. There, there were Vikings in Rome and in Greece from yeah. the earliest times. So, uh, I, I never had a problem with it. But for get back to the eighty nine quake, we decided we would go do um, a ritual to you know stop the a ritual to Poseidon, and because he's the god of the ocean, right. So we we went out to the beach and we've cast the circle and we're getting ready to start it. And two guys on horseback came riding up and I went up to him. I said, guys, can I persuade you to help us out with some of this? And they said, sure. And I had the horses cast the circle. Oh, wow. right there forces around to cast the circle. And there has not been a major quake in California, or at least not in San Francisco, since the 89 quake. So we're not claiming responsibility. We're just claiming we're trying to keep it from happening in our lifetime. And of course, that brings up most of my coven and even Steve McNallan. There's some highly intellectual man in our kindred and he used to study phenomenology and he said to me, Prudence, you are living phenomenology. And he he was there when we did the earthquake ritual. And he says, only you could conjure two horses for your ritual. You know, so there's one example. So And my astrology teacher, Carl Payne Toby, he wanted to know how I did synchronistic things like that. But that's just always been a natural talent that doesn't really get enough use. But uh, that's all I can think of for now.
0: What... um motivated you to become involved in the European Congress of Ethnic Religions and other interfaith interfaith organizations?
1: Uh, Well, the interfaith organizations was due to uh, the bad practitioners of Christianity. And at first, I just wanted to show up and be there and say we were there, right? Uh, Yeah. those first interfaith meetings out at the presidio and we did several interfaith rituals out there and from this ties into the european congress of religions because most american witches you know they wear a nine foot cord right right but what do they do with it <laughs> see yeah good question good question well, I know what you do with it, and I've learned it in Lithuania. And I have uh, a Lithuanian cord that it takes them uh, uh, 30 days or the space of a moon from uh, new to full and back again. And it's uh, they're hand woven. They only make one a month. Um I bought one years ago for a hundred euros and now they're 400 euros. And that's of course, if you can find them, I bought mine from the ethnographic museum, but it's nine feet long and we pass it around the circle hand to hand. And Victoria loan She loved that. You know, I, I've, I've oh, yeah. that to a bunch of people and, uh, for all of those that never knew what to do with your cord, I have something you can use your cord for. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that also ties in to get to the European Congress of Ethnic Religions. I never thought I would be able to go to the Baltic states because when I grew up, they were under the Iron Curtain. And my uncle Bill Sally had stamps from the War of all three of the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And I'd, I'd always wanted to go, but you never could. I, I went to Russia in 2003, and it was really hard to go to Russia. And yeah. I was, you know, they, they are not nice there, as the yeah. recent stuff with Navalny and others show. It's like, yeah, come jump out this window. But I've been uh, to a ritual in Canada that was run by, uh, um, well, they have their own name for it. And I don't want to mess it up in English, but it's the Romuva religion. And the Romuva was a tree like the, um, um, what's the one the Christians cut down? The name of that's escaping me. It was an Yggdrasil, It was um, they cut down some sacred tree. Anyway, the Romuva tree uh, is what the religion's based on. But the old Romuva or the originating site, like Uppsala at Sweden, is in Prussia, and that's where my ancestors are from. And they did a Romuva ritual in Toronto, Canada, at Wiccan Fest one year. And that's how I found out about this magazine called The Sacred Serpent. And publishing Yggdrasil, we had an exchange subscription. So I learned about a lot of their rites and rituals. And I had been in the Raza ceremony uh, twice, at least in Canada. And that's summer solstice. Raza is summer solstice. So... They started the European Congress in 1998, and uh, Jonas Trinkunas, who was the head of that tradition and had been since the 60s in Lithuania, he wrote articles for the sacred serpent and I had corresponded with him. And in 1997, in January, my husband had died, My aunt Patsy, who had the Transylvanian connections, she died like a month later. And I was also diagnosed with cancer. And I had an operation and it was successful, but they said, we don't know know, if you're going to survive. And if there's anything you ever wanted to do, you should go do it. And um, I took Harry McBride with me. And we went on some tour that went from Finland to Estonia by ferry and then to Latvia and then to Lithuania in 97. And uh, that's when uh, I actually, Jonas was out of town. I was trying to meet him, but it, it was only um, one week. No, it hit weeks. In, in those four countries. And uh, Finland and Estonia are related linguistically and Lithuanian and Latvian are also related linguistically and are the oldest languages in Europe. And they're the oldest, their language is closest to Sanskrit. Yeah. So they're an Indo-European language anyway. The following year in 98, I went back and that's when the Congress of Ethnic Religions was started. But originally it was called the World Congress. So they called it Wicker W-C-E-R. But then they realized they weren't the world because in 2012, we went to the World Congress in India. And that was a fun trip, too. But uh, that's Basically, what motivated it to me, and I was really interested of all the countries I went to, I thought I'd like Estonia best, but I really liked um, Lithuania. And by the late 90s, Jonas and his family had basically adopted me. Um, He and his wife and I are four years apart, and we're all year of the rabbit. Uh, Jonas was 12 years older, and my roots were Prussian. And I remember people would ask, why are you in our country? Because I went to a lot of places where they'd never seen an American. That's how isolated Lithuania is. And I said, I'm Prussian. And they would all go, oh, <laughs> because Russia is now where Kaliningrad is, and that's where the Russian Navy is. That's the fourth Baltic state, but the Russians have kept it. And that's another reason uh, why Poland and Lithuania are so freaked over uh, uh, the Russians, because they're figuring they're going to come right through like the border of those countries straight to Kaliningrad. And Kaliningrad is uh, being blockaded by the uh, Lithuanians and it's easy to do because the Lithuanian spits only one to five kilometers wide and there's only one road. So the, the Russians can't go by land to get to uh, Belarus or Ukraine, which are both right next to Lithuanian Poland. Anyway, and uh, when I went on the bad practitioners of Christianity, besides the current ones, Uh, The last pagan emperor of Europe was Lithuanian, and his name was Gediminas. and he had a dream interpreter, and he used to do Raza at this wonderful place we all go to still, and uh, what is the name of that place? Oh, it's escaping me, but I've been there four or five times, and I just went like years ago but they celebrate there and it's a teeny tiny town of like 200 people but it has four huge churches because it's such a pagan place and there are four hills and they burn um, uh, poles on the top of each one at summer solstice and the ritual goes from like six in the evening till four in the morning it's nonstop and there's thousands and thousands like like, like a, a, a music festival. There's 20, 30, up to 50,000 people there just for summer solstice. And Jonas's group uh, leads the, the parade uh, every year. And they also do divination by flowers. And it, it reminds me of... Uh, Passage. I don't know if you've ever read any. Uh, is it Gerald Gardner? Uh, no, I think it's Stuart Farrar's uh, book on the um, something about uh, the covens were all gathered on the hillside for some ritual, probably summer solstice or May Day. Yeah. Everybody was gathered in their own little circles and uh, you know, having uh, every, everything was all nice and hunky-dory and there was this long involved ritual. And he could have been writing about uh, what happens at Raza at Kernova, which is one of the oldest towns. And it was at Kernova where there are four, like I said, hill mounds and uh, above uh, a river that flows through the land there. And uh, when Gediminus spent the night there for summer solstice, and this was in the 1400s, he had a dream of an iron wolf. And his capital is the only Baltic capital that's inland. And he had his dream interpreter, and I've been to his dream interpreter's house. It's a really cool place. And they do a Raza there at his place in Vilnius. Uh, in the summer, as opposed to the uh, main spot, but anyway, he told Gudeminus that he should build his the capital um, inland, where the where two rivers came together, and that's where it stands still day. And his tower still stands, tolerant of all religions, and. The only people he didn't tolerate in his country were those uh, uh, the Teutonic Knights. And he kicked them out of his country and said they were bad practitioners of their religion, which they were. You yeah. couldn't argue with them. And again, they had a huge Jewish population. And it was called Vilno, and it's uh, a large part of the capital as well to this day. But um, uh, as I mentioned, he was tolerant of all religions. However, he married a Polish princess, and of course, she was Catholic. So then the country became Christian, but it was in name only because the folk traditions are so um, ingrained there. I I mean, even Christians come out to celebrate Raza because it's midsummers. Or like in Sweden, they still dance the Maypole, only they dance it in June because of the weather. I did go to a a Swedish Raza one year, and that was interesting because it was really more May Day. But same thing, at least it was warm enough to do it.
0: I want to ask you next, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the pagan community since you started your activism?
1: Oh, boy. Um, Well, uh, I had like two comments on that question, and these are the biggest because I've seen a lot of changes, but one is the exponential growth. And I've also seen with growth, it's just like with the truth. You get the good with the bad. You get the people that want to take advantage of people and their interests in the occult or magic or even heathenry. And, uh, and then you get the people that want to promote it. And uh, the other thing that's nice now is I can remember when women and actually uh, a man in um, our kindred, lost uh, custody of their children because they were heathens or pagans. And that doesn't happen anymore, although who knows if they keep going towards the handmaid's tale in our country, but I don't know anyone who's lost custody of their children this century. So that's a, a really big change to me.
0: what would you say are some of the most important issues pagans are facing today and how would you advocate for them?
1: Okay. Well, I have a couple answers to that. and I actually was on a panel at Starwood last year, and that's the exact question they asked. But basically the thing any advocate for paganism can do is to facilitate growth of kindreds, covens, pagan tribes, whatever, and uh, to support or broadcast or use social media to support new temples and groves and even the pagan libraries that are starting. And um, we used to have a lot of fests and I was just reading the Kansas pagan community chat. I belong to a lot of regional uh, chat groups because I travel all over the country and Europe and Canada going to different festivals, uh, as since, especially since I'm an ambassador for Romuva. Anyway, um, there used to be, Kansas used to have the largest pagan festival in the country. And it's gone. And again, that's the problem with too much growth too fast: is um, people get involved in various feuds, witch wars, psychic wars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we do need more well-organized and well-run uh, festivals, and especially the pagan prides. Those have become really popular. And I would recommend that anybody brand new attend a, a local Pagan Pride, because that's where you'll meet people that might help you on your path.
0: I wanted to um, ask you next, um, what can listeners, regardless of their experience, level get involved in pagan activism what can they do to get involved
1: okay well i have two stories on that too and one comes under the memorable experience uh reward this is a great story and i actually just talked to owen before you called or uh, before i started this interview about half an hour ago anyway Uh, Again, attending a pagan pride is probably the easiest, or going to an occult bookstore or herbal place, or like in Seattle, there's a place that sells gargoyles and pinnacles and other statuary and stuff, and they usually have a bulletin board, and you can usually ask, and some groups are open and some aren't, but I have seen people advertising, and usually the owners of the shops, if they think you're cool, they'll give you a a recommendation. But to the activism point, many years ago, they busloaded like four or five buses of Christians into San Francisco for Halloween. And this was when Halloween and the Castro with the Sisters of Perpetual indulgence were still happening. And Halloween's always been a big deal in San Francisco. And they were down at the center, the the old Fillmore Center at Civic Center, right across the street from City Hall. And they had bought, brought in busloads of fanatical Christians to Uh, pray to get rid of the demons of perversion in Oakland and the sinners in San Francisco. And I remember um, the leader of the, they had their own name, but they were prostitutes. And uh, the lady who led them, she showed up at that, conference we weren't going to let the christians get away with it and right she was wearing a snake and was stark naked and was telling people come back to the goddess (laughs) you know give up your, your worship of the you know an alien prophet come back to the gods of your goddesses of your ancestors and meanwhile they had police barricades and my kindred and coven We're all down there screaming at the Christians as they're marching in. Bring back the lions. Bring back the lions. (laughs) I called. I I was talking to Edred quite a lot at the time. This would have been the early 90s. And I told him how, you know, we actually protested the Christians, you know, trying to pull this weirdness and trying to destroy our holiday. Right. Yeah. Another thing the sisters did was they had a a dummy of Jesus on a penis cross and were dragging it in the parade, which also freaked out the Christians. And uh, anyway, I'm going on like I am to you. And Edward goes, Prudence, people don't protest against the Christians. And I said, well, we did. I don't go into their church on Sunday and tell them they can't uh, pray and drink the body and blood of their god. Uh, anyway, so that's one of my favorite episodes of activism and for paganism.
0: How have your beliefs and practices evolved over the years? What are some of the things you've learned and that, that have changed for you along the way?
1: Uh, I have a really easy answer to this because uh, it's probably like too many to mention or too many to list but at this point um, we've been saying this since our 50th anniversary of the coven and I'm trying to think how many, ori- well we only have three, no we have four original members left which is pretty good but anyway what we tell everybody now is that we don't practice witchcraft anymore we know how (laughs) I like that I do too that's that's the easiest way I can say it you know we've we're very empirical we've learned what works and what doesn't work and obviously we've uh, learned and changed it it takes a lot of work to have a coven for 50 years especially one that's never split up I can't tell you the number of covens I've been in that split up or I was in one where the priest and priestess like lost their calling. That's kind of scary. I can't imagine ever losing my calling to be a priestess. Yeah. But, you know, I've, I've seen a lot. And But as I say, I would be another hour.
0: What advice would you give somebody who is just starting to explore paganism?
1: Well, I think I mentioned part of that about how they can find places to go. But some of the things I think are really important is to stay away from cults. Like I believe back in the 70s, the um, the farm and uh, Gavin and Yvonne Frost were really cults and you should verify any schools or courses on the craft that you take talk to somebody who who joined them and if they won't give you a lot of times they'll claim well we can't tell you who our members or students were because we'd be violating their confidentiality they say something like that go well you know don't have anything to do with them and um a lot of groups uh, or, um, I don't know, like uh, colleges. There are several colleges of witchcraft and stuff. I recommend Cherry Hill Seminary.
0: Oh, yeah. Cherry Hill's uh, wonderful.
1: It's probably a little more, you know, advanced, I guess. Although that you could probably find some group to join or practice with. But in general... And it's fine for people to charge for classes and stuff for that. But a basic question to ask is if they charge for initiations, because no, no coven should charge for an initiation. That's my personal view. And if they do, they're suspect. Yeah, they may be fine, but, you know, I, I think they're suspect.
0: Now, I know personally I've been able to, I've been privileged to be able to see into some of your library. Um, Are there any books that um, are your favorites or that you recommend to people?
1: Oh, all the time. Uh, And especially to newcomers. Oh, and I left one off my Norse list instead of writing it down. The best introduction for anyone in the Norse tradition are to read the Elder Eddas and the Sagas. The poetic Edda is only for people that want to learn how to write Norse poetry, but the Elder Edda is like the heathen Bible. It's the best way to describe that. And I recommend any book by Hilda Ellis Davidson. And she wrote a beginner's intro to uh, Norse mythology. And uh, I recommend all of Edred Thorson's books. But if you're interested in the runes, the most important one to read in that series is called Rune Lore. And for beginners and for people who think they know it all, uh, there was a couple called their last name is Dolair, and that's D apostrophe capital A U L A I R E, and um, they did two of the best books ever written for beginners and pros alike, because the backs of both of these books give you the pronunciations. You know, if you're if if you're calling a god and you're mispronouncing their name, they're not likely to listen to you, are they? No. So I uh, like I said, that's empiricism. But um, they did a book called Greek Gods and Goddesses, which is wonderful, and they did, and the illustrations are lovely. They're like children's watercolors, but they're just enchanting. And the other one uh, for the Norse is Norse Gods and Giants. And those were their two mythologies. And they published quite extensively in the 60s and 70s. And all of their books are still in print, at least the two I mentioned.
0: Oh, yeah, we have them in the library where I work.
1: And then, oh, exactly. Have you read one of them? They're just Yeah, fabulous. actually, I
0: know. I I love them. Uh, I actually have both of those.
1: Exactly, and I give them to my God goddess children, you know, for presents yeah. to read and stuff, because they're very easy to find, and they're not very expensive, even now, and then that's for, you know, beginners or people just trying to find their way, but favorite books from my library, one is a French author, Dushayu, and I don't know if you'll ever be able to find a copy, but he wrote a Two-volume set on the Viking Age, which is full of really useful information, and uh, I also like for the Greek side. I like the uh, Homeric Hymns, and um, if you want, you can read Ovid and some of the other uh, Greek philosophers. But the Homeric Hymns are are really good. And there's some guy out now, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I met him in Tennessee in 2015. He put out a Pythagorean Tarot. with, um, And I saw it at the time. I wish I'd bought it. They're going for $150 now. And the book is pretty pricey, too. But the book is very good for, you know, going into Greek mythology. But he just recently put out... uh, a book on Greek tradition, which I, I haven't finished, but it's it's very interesting, and um, I also recommend anything by William Morris, and he did just beautiful uh, translations of both Greek, and he wrote his own uh, Norse books. He he's the inventor of the Fantasy genre because he did uh, several. Send that's a two or three volume set, but they're all full of just great, you know how the Vikings should have been stuff. And of course he, yeah. he translated uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and it, anything you can find of his and. Mostly, yeah, you do have to go to the library. Now, as for um, really good fiction, um, well, um, I would say Harry Harrison, he did a trilogy on the Vikings that I've always loved. And any, any of Poole Anderson wrote mostly uh, science fiction stuff, but he did a lot of uh, books on a Viking theme. I'm trying to remember one, but uh, I'm always looking for books by him that are uh, about the old gods and the Vikings. And again, he was Swedish, so he would know. He said I was one of the only people that ever pronounced his name correctly. And uh, I knew his wife, too, but they're long gone. And then again, Fritz Leiber, Jr. uh, wrote... um, the Fairford and Gray Mauser series, and that was basically based on Thor and Loki. And I know that because he was in our coven, and uh, he was so happy when he joined us. He one of his first, well, two of his books, uh, conj the the conjure darkness, and he wrote one about. Well, it was made into a bunch of movies, like one was called, I Married a Witch. Yeah. And um, oh, Gather Darkness, that's the other one that's set in San Francisco on the tour. And it said the witches were gathering up there. And we used to celebrate when I lived in San Francisco, we went up on the tour all the time. And Ed lived on the the bottom of the tour and had a hot tub in his back that's when i was in the raven we you know we had a good time and again one of my most memorable experiences with him i loved it when he wrote our coven up in locust magazine and i run into science fiction people all the time they go fritz wasn't a witch i go yes he was and he was an elder in our coven so then i just give him a copy of that article which i have somewhere i love his writing is that Um, enough books oh yeah I'm rereading the wanderer now and the first page or something said something about runic runic carven stones or something and I was like oh man because when he I it's so odd how I met Fritz I actually managed his apartment building and we would do pest control every month and he was all the way up on the sixth floor and I went in there with the pest control guy because I was letting him into every apartment and I walk in and the wall was just covered with uh, Hugo's and Edgar Allan Poe and um, all all these science fiction awards. And he even had a gun that was called the gray Mauser. And he had nine statues of the Norse gods that he had commissioned Dale Eisenbacher to do. And I'm like, I got to get to know this guy. (laughs) So uh, so we did, and we became fast friends, and we initiated him, no problem. And uh, he just said he'd been looking for, uh, you know, real witches since the 30s, you know? yeah. Yeah, I made him, when he was going to some convention um, somewhere like Chicago or New York or something, I made him a traveling charm, and he almost burst into tears. He says, uh, somebody finally gave me a hand. That's what he called charms. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read that book, but it was made into a movie three times, and you can still see I Married a Witch on TV. It's all about the college professor who has the witch. That had Veronica tried to help egg, didn't him it? out, you know. But he, he, he I, I, think so. I think yeah. so. Could have been. And anyway, I can show these to you. Um, let's see. When Fritz joined our coven, he gave me his statue of Freya, uh, and he had two Freyas. One is mistress of love, and of course, I've got the one of her as mistress of magic in her falcon cloak, wearing her necklace. And uh, these are really tiny. They're only about six inches high, but the detail's exquisite. Trying to see if, oh, there you go. You can see her pretty well. She's very nice. And uh, I'm just showing these to you. I don't care if they're in the interview or not. And after Fritz died in the 90s, his son gave me Fritz's statue of his favorite norse deity and that was heimdall
0: oh yeah
1: uh, there's some debate that you know heimdall or thor is uh fairford and i think he's kind of a cross in between because uh, um this guy heimdall he basically guards the rainbow bridge and a lot of capricorns in my coven have heimdall as their you know personal deity and uh, let's see. Oh, there's his horn on the back. I'll just turn him around for you a little.
0: That's um, really amazing work.
1: Uh, I know. I know. And they're all signed. The other seven are in the museum in Houston. So, <laughs> uh, you know, stuff gets scattered all over the place. But I got all of these out for you for the interview because I thought it might be uh, live. But now we can go back to, we're almost done with your questions.
0: Yeah, and I was going to ask you, you next about uh, your degree in astrology and how it influences your life.
1: Oh, well, again, it has influenced me almost since I could read. My dad taught me how to read, and he was an unrepentant he then. That's what his mother called him. Anyway, he taught me to read the funny papers. And, uh, you know, because they're great. Some cartoons have no words. And I remember reading Prince Valiant or, you know, he'd read them to me, but then I'd try to read them too. So he actually taught me, my dad taught me how to read, but they also had the astrology column in the Cincinnati Inquirer. And it said, uh, I was born on summer solstice. I was born on June 21st and half the... Astrology books say you're a Gemini if you're born on the 21st, and the other half say you're a Cancer, right? So, yeah. even in high school, I had to find out. And of course, that's when I started studying by mail with the Rosicrucians in Oceanside. And I, I use astrology for everything, <laughs> even doing this interview today, the moons in Libra. And as Fritz would say, it's a waning gibbous moon. So um, I use I it, uh, it's a must for proper right planning. And now that Pluto, which takes 13 to 32 years to pass through a sign, has passed out a Capricorn, which has been really hard on the world, shall we say, uh, yeah. It's going into Aquarius and it's probably the true precursor to the age of Aquarius. Uh, it's going to go retrograde later this year, a little back into Capricorn. But after that, uh, we're all hoping the wood Dragon's going to straighten out a lot of the world's um, problems. I also, I want to, Mention to give someone. There is an astrology day planner and planetary calendar. I'm reading the cover. It's a uniquely intuitive system with astrology forecasts designed for beginners and experts and calculated for Pacific time, and they are celebrating their 75th anniversary. And I wish I'd found them 50 years ago. But Jim Maynard was great. But this does a new and full moon astrological diagram for each month. It gives forecasts. It, it has everything. And they'll even send you emails. You can get an online version. I'm trying to find their ah, www planetary calendar all one word, dot com. highly highly recommended i'm so happy i found them
0: i want to ask you next um what do you think some of the misconceptions people have about paganism are
1: well you know they still a lot of them still think that you know witches is just curse people or you know witches are you know uh, not really know what they're doing or they're devil worshipers or, you know, we're out kissing the devil's arse and stuff like that. But, um, and I would get that a lot from the heathens because they're like, oh, well, we don't believe in witches. And I go, are you out of your minds? Have you never read Grimm's fairy tales? do you know who Golvig was, the thrice burnt witch in Asgard? I'm like, you're just ignorant. And that's what I find when um, the misconceptions are all due mostly to ignorance, just like all the Vikings are skinheads and and racist and whatever. And they're not. In fact, we were, you know, original members of Heathens Against Hate. And I still had like, the most diverse gatherings gatherings you ever could have gone to we had you know every race gender or or non-gender or all all of the alphabet letters they go by today we had two female um, lesbian marines and uh, not Freya's folk but the group we did with it the California Outland Association which was an association like COG only it was member kindreds and we we just had uh, i i can't even imagine i'm trying to think of somebody we didn't have we had a native american indian we had plenty of black folk both genders etc um etc and another misconception I'd like to bring up this is going back a ways too i guess this was the late 80s there was a pagan witch meat of some sort and in sacramento at the county fairgrounds and that's where oberon brought the unicorn and it, it was supposed to be tons of people and of course they were having all kinds of fights and i remember asking allison should i still go she said yeah go and have a good time so i did go <laughs> and um i remember one of the things we did, because the Christians were all ringing the outside, the entrance or exit to it. And I remember marching with Starhawk and a bunch of us just blasted through the Christians. And we sang them a filthy song, which went uh, sex, 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 sex. <laughs> People, we are made from sex. Stick your fingers in each other, yum, yum, yum. And they started fleeing. There were like <laughs> three or four verses, they just couldn't handle it. But that was one of the most that was one way to address them, and one of the most fun things I ever did. Speaking of being an activist and a feminist.
0: What what do you think looking back to um you know the time that you spent? In, in the you know pagan in, in, the, in the different pagan crafts i'll I'll edit this part out I'm sorry I'm kind of babbling I'm gonna start again back what are you most proud of because you're a pagan and an activist
1: oh well that's a almost a, a long story but I've really enjoyed almost all of my interactions and, and going to festivals all over the country and the world, even to India one year, that was amazing. Um, I would say in terms of what I'm really proud of, I was really proud, I think I mentioned earlier when Fritz wrote us up in Locust Magazine. Because it validated him and validated us, I felt, and made a statement to those who, uh, again, like your previous question, probably had a lot of misconceptions and denials. But uh, when I joined uh, Romuva and the ECER in 99, something I'm very, very proud of is that uh, we turned my pigsty, goat shed, whatever, into the first new pagan temple in europe and when i bought the property in romuva village i put all those eight pieces of property together and instead of having to rent a site to have a festival they have a pagan summer camp there every year in august for Jamina, the earth goddess, that's her holiday in August. And anyway, um, I love donating my property. I watched it being redone. I've made two stained glass windows for it. And some guys from Countess, the next village over, they came and put the uh, cross. Beam dragon poles up on the side of the temple. And we have three carved figures like you read in the sagas. Uh, well, basically, they're to uh, um, Thor and Odin and um, uh, Freya or Frigga. Uh, we, we actually have a lord and lady carving to be exact. And in the middle pole is an ancestor pillar and it shows it has various uh, animals kind of like an indian totem pole and, and when you come in because i'm a freya priestess uh some guy carved us they're all carved out of yellow oak and uh the one in the entryway is only about a foot thick but it's a statue of milda who is the norse freya and she holds a little plate and it has amber offerings on it and People have woven cords around her and we do rituals there. And it's nice because it rains a lot in Lithuania. And of course, when I'm there for a month in the summer, I go there all the time. So I'm very proud that I made them a village and, uh, you know, we built our own temple. And we have two uh, saunas or pyrtises on site. That's the Lithuanian word for it. So... But it's a, a real village now, and it's a, not only does it have a heathen temple, it's a heathen village. So that was 99, and I thought, you know, I've accomplished my great work, right? And another one I thought back in the 90s was when I translated Demonographia, which, uh, if you can find a copy, they're only about a $1,000 Uh, you know, antiquarian bookshops, but it was the art of demons, and they'd been looking for a translator for five years, so finally my degree in French philology worked, because it was written in Middle French, it was written in the 1800s, and I was up at Joel's bookbinding place one day, and he was telling me about it, and I picked up the, you know, one of the volumes, it's the four volume set, and I just started sight translating it, and they said, you want a job, so I did that, and then uh, another thing I'm proud of, I'm very proud of going to Iceland in the year 2000, and I spoke to the Icelandic parliament. Well, I met the Icelanders, and they had a building. They now have their own, um, you know, outdoor temple complex, because if you say you're a, an Odinist or Asatru in uh, Iceland uh, on your census form, you get tax money from the government for the uh, Ossetru. So they built their own outdoor source. They had an indoor meeting place, meeting hall, and that's where I met the second Alls Harry Gauthier in 2000. And he set it up, you know how in Berkeley the crazies show up and they want to give out free pomegranates on Sunday or you know, whatever people show up and say silly things about. But it, they're serious to them. Anyway, I went before the Icelandic Parliament in Ostera 2000 and demanded that Jesus Christ be put on trial for oath breaking. And they listened politely, and then I said, "You know, he he said a thousand years ago that he would come back, and it's been a thousand years, and he lied. He has not come back, and." We want our old gods back. And they said, they were very polite to me, but you know, I made my case. I know I said more than that, but that was the gist of it. And the, the Icelandic interpreter was looking at me like they couldn't believe I would say such a thing to parliament. But I did. And I'm very proud of it. And they said they'd take it under advisement. But it may well have helped the Icelanders to get their new temple built which they did, um, you know, like the year after that, I think. And again, I'm very proud, if I haven't said it already, of my coven and kindred and all my fellow travelers.
0: Now, can I ask you next, um, how did you get to come back to um, the Eastern Bloc countries? um, And and, uh, how did you get involved with Remova back in Europe?
1: Well, again, I started... um, uh, in in the 97, when I first went, and actually I talked to some Latvian pagans, and we had the ECR in Latvia last year, and that was awesome because some baker there bought, um, you know, he's made tons of money. He bought an island just off the coast of Latvia, and it's not very far, it's maybe 500 feet. And Mm -hmm. they built a reconstruction of a Latvian uh, Romuva temple. And um, we went. It was awesome. And every group from every branch did like their version of an opening ritual, but a short version. And you had to take a ferry to get there. It was awesome. And I actually met the guy that's the head of the um, Finnish... Uh, shamanic tradition you know those those people don't talk to well they, they again I met all the the real heathens in Europe last year although I've known a lot of them for years but that's the first time someone from Finland showed up and that's also evidence of the just exponential growth of heathenism but as I said earlier I'm not involved with Remuva because it was like finding my roots. And again, the head of the religion there, Jonas Trincunis. they did, he and uh, the lady that ran the fellowship of ISIS, Olivia, I think, Robertson, they both died the same year and they both got a full page in Circle Magazine. But Jonas and I were fast friends almost from the day we met. And now when I go there, they make me sit at the head of the table. But that's just a Lithuanian uh, custom. I had to uh, accept that. And I work so closely with them. I barely speak the language, but I understand a lot of it. And, of course, in ritual work, I, I know what I'm doing. And Enia's had me help out with at least a dozen weddings, a dozen osavatnis, or child blessings. I've only been to two funeral workings with her, but I I participate in a lot of her rituals, and I know how to sing the songs. And my Facebook page, uh, you'll see me there, and there's an example of phenomenology. One year, we went to this, uh, I'd always wanted to go, we went to this uh, Heathen Music Festival in Sarasay, which is also an island between Latvia and Lithuania, and they have 20, 30,000 people, and it's called the Festival of the Moon and the Heart, as in a stag. And um, uh, Enia called uh, when I was up, while we were driving up there, we went up the day before, and she called and she said her daughter was sick. And could I lead the ritual? So I'm like, uh, 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 okay. And that's my picture on Facebook, D'Gabia, the goddess of the fire. But that was just amazing. There were 2,000 people at that ritual, and I had um, 12 drummers, nine bagpipers, and at least 12 or 20 singers from cool Grinda. So all I had to do really was go through the motions and, you know, hail the goddesses and the gods, you know, hail Perkunas. Okay. Everybody, you know, sing the song. And, uh, um, I, I just, uh, I was astonished. I could do it. And after that, they made me an elder in the room of a tradition. So, um, And I never thought I'd get to be one. They call their Council of Elders the ROTAS, R-O-T-A-S. And that means the circle or the wheel. Well, it's literally the wheel, but the wheel is a circle. So I'm on their uh, ROTAS Council. And anyway, I don't know. Jonas and I corresponded. I helped him edit... um, his book on Baltic gods and goddesses, when he translated it into English. Um, And it's literally the religion of my ancestors. And not many of us can say we're practicing that anymore. And it's definitely, um, I'll tell you a story about this because it goes back the furthest of all. Uh, Even in the sagas and Beowulf, Beowulf swam the Coronian spit, and that's the spit of land that comes out, of, well, it got, runs from Poland to uh, Klaipata in Lithuania. And so it's a huge lagoon. But anyway, that's in Beowulf. And, you know, the Christians were always saying, God spare us from the fury of the Vikings, right? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you know who the Vikings were afraid of? Who? The Coronians, the Coronians <laughs> are the Lithuanians. So, you know, they, are the fiercest of all Vikings, you know, and that's my stock. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my family's from Kaliningrad, which is, you know, on the Coronian spit or, you know, inland of it on the other side of the lagoon. Cause as I said earlier, the, Coronian Spit is only one to five kilometers wide. So there's there's a couple little towns on this spit, but only two I can think of. And then you get to Kaliningrad, which you can't go to anymore. Even when I went to Russia, I couldn't go to Kaliningrad without paying another $300 for a one-day visa to go there. And I was like, I'm not giving them my money. But Jonas think- took me. Them-
0: Do you think there's a big resurgence of um, paganism around the world? Because a lot of these things are just amazing.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I should send you pictures of this temple in Latvia. It's astounding. Um, And more and more people um, are following everyone else's um, um, leads, so to speak. There's some guy, he's on Facebook, and he's in Moldavia, or some little country between Ukraine and further east. And he makes wonderful peat bog carvings, like about 10 inches high of Norse gods and goddesses. Although, uh, again, in that country, they're not necessarily Norse, but I know he's done statues of hell and uh, they translate. Even um, Thor, uh, when you go to the museum... And Nida, which is at the end of the Spit, is where Thomas Mann, the German, lived. So when I used to go to the museums and see stuff, it, it wouldn't be in English. It would be in Lithuanian and German. And Cirlonis, who's my favorite Lithuanian artist, he did 12 Zodiac paintings. And he also, well, he did other gods too. But he did a painting of Perkunis. And the translation in German of course is Donner and English is Thor. So uh, the, and the Balts and um, uh, even like the, the Czechoslovakians, the other Slavic tribes, they, they, are, they understand the affinities to that pantheon. I mean, they have their own names, but they're the same gods. And uh, um, there's like no difference of uh, when I've gone to a lot of their um, ceremonies, and uh, and once people start going to international conferences, things spread even more. I I even know a Swiss kindred, and you wouldn't think the Swiss, you know, they're so Calvinistic. When I went to visit Wolfie's, like. Uh Calvin's rolling over in his grave with you there. I was there for their Halloween in full <laughs> rich gear. It was fun. But yeah, um, did that answer your question? I know Yeah, I just really,
0: I love, I mean, I love hearing about these stories because I think a lot of us don't know a lot of this stuff that's happening around the world. You know, we're very American-centric and we think about ourselves and it's nice to hear that other cultures are having a resurgence of paganism.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and again, that's, that's part of, now that's one of the big challenges, because uh, Americans think they invented paganism, you know? We do, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You,
1: you know, and the Europeans don't like that, especially when. I've been to Vilnius university, which was founded in 1479. And I've been to their French philology department, but the outer thing of one building is all um, astrological planets and stuff from the 15th century. Europe is so far, you know, like behind us and ahead of us. And, um, and again, the thing that really preserved a lot of stuff—I've talked about this in several of my lectures. Paganism was preserved under communism because that period from you know the depression till now, or you know this uh, when when they got free, that they, they weren't allowed to be uh, uh, God worshipers or Christians. You know that was God. You know they were all godless communists. And in fact, when I first started going to uh, European, uh, formerly Russian states, uh, they were using the churches for concerts and uh, graduations. I went to Vertra's graduation at some church. And now, and again, though, once they got free, the Catholic Church started pouring millions and millions of dollars into re-Christianizing the country, but at this point, it's too late. And Enia used to be uh, Jonas's wife, and she's now the head of the church. She's like the papess of uh, Romuva. Um, They started, uh, well, I'm trying to figure out how to explain what it is that she did or does. But she used to be a secretary for a a Russian basketball player. And she made like maybe $700 a month. Okay, maybe $700 a month. And not a week, a month, okay? But uh, anyway, she now, since she's the spiritual head of our religion in Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, anyway, um, she makes more money doing weddings, funerals, and and births or um, water sprinkling. Because ba- the Christian custom of baptism came from the Vikings, from an osavotni which is a water sprinkling. I, I wrote a paper on that, and it got plagiarized by someone I don't want to mention. But anyway. I'm sorry. Um, I know. But it's a good paper. And uh, see, so again, when I showed up in Lithuania, I knew what they were doing, whereas yeah. most Americans had, have no. I, I don't think most Americans know what Inosavotny is, even the heathens. But that's the Norse, you know, that's in the Norse language. And literally, it's a water sprinkling, and it's when you were accepted into the tribe. And uh, anyway, that's a long paper I wrote. And the other thing... With uh, Enia now, I mean, she's totally uh, independent and doesn't have to do anything but rituals. And what happened with the fall of communism is that people that had civil wedding ceremonies, like going to City Hall and saying you're married, right?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: People that were married in Russian times, she does at least a wedding a week now of people who want a as they call it a traditional wedding and that's yeah. when we use the belts for arches for the couples to go under. We we got a use for our cords, I'll tell you. And nice. Again, Americans just have no idea. Although I, I've been teaching as many as I can because it's a really, you know they really work for that. Um besides you apply know, in your life to it and other things but no that's uh any other things uh, you want me to go off on or was that
0: well actually yeah. i was going to ask you one last request and it wasn't in the uh, questions um i've often heard your beautiful voice singing songs at events that i've been to and i was wondering if you could uh, for the last thing favor us with any song you want to sing
1: oh boy well what do you want <laughs> Uh, i don't know
0: yeah you heard you sang some great stuff at victoria's birthday so just anything
1: oh yes yes well it's like do i want to sing Gwydion's pagan national anthem or do i want to do i'm actually trying to win the best song at the international pagan music association and i don't know i don't think i can do as good a version uh what would you call this Ex tempore, as opposed to um um whatever but let me think i think i'll do gwydians because that's the most universal and we call it the pagan national anthem and i think i sang that at victoria's i know i sang that one song that's new in my repertoire because i finally ran into lady sybil again i think you all liked i'm going to be a country witch again but i don't have that memorized yet and uh Maka and victoria i have two favorites and those are the two i'm trying to uh, get properly recorded and out there but let me take a sip of water and clear my throat and okay. uh i will take a brief pause while i uh take a sip and stand up and uh sing the pagan national anthem which was written by Quittian Penderwin who's long departed. I geez I went to his funeral that was the early 80s. Anyway okay give me a second yeah I'm stiff from sitting too and I don't know if you can still see me but I'll I can see you I gotta stand up to sing. Oh, you can see me. Okay. I can see so her, yeah. is that good?
0: Good. Or, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, God, I don't think I want that. Well, whatever. Okay. Excuse me while I cough. Okay. <laughs> Pasha has trained me. You know, I have this fabulous memory. I know so many songs and I, I don't write them down. We're definitely an oral tradition, but, um, I can go more off key than anyone I know, but I've, I've gotten much better. And so uh, here is my version or my rendition of We Won't Wait Any Longer we have trusted no man's promise we have kept it just ourselves we have suffered from the lies in all the books upon your shelves and our patience and endurance through the burning times and now have given us the strength to keep our vows we won't wait any longer we are stronger than before. We won't wait any longer. We are stronger. You have grazed away the heather. You have raised the sacred groves. You have driven Native peoples from the places that they loved. Though your greed has been unfounded, you have felt the pangs of shame every time you've trod upon the mother's name. We won't wait any longer. We are stronger than before. We won't wait any longer. We are stronger, though you thought you had destroyed the memory of the ancient ways. Still, the people light the balefires every year on solstice day, and on Walpurgis and Samhain, you can find us on the hill invoking once again the triple will. We won't wait any longer. We are before. We won't wait any longer. We are stronger. Through the ages, many races have risen and have gone but dispersed among the nations of the world we linger on. Now the time has come to take the sacred cauldron of rebirth and fulfill our ancient pledges to the earth. I left out the last (laughs) chorus. It needs like 10 people singing it. I heard you clap. I'm glad you liked it
0: yeah no, i know i mean it gives—it always gives me chills i, I love i never get I know, gives
1: me to chills you know especially when i got pasha and so well cecilia's dad uh, but you know other members of my kindred singing it or even rhoda and Maka and victoria you know they all know it whoops i dropped something oh. oh boy well that was two hours i gotta Prudence, go to i want to thank
0: you i want to <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast and and sharing your time with us and this has been really wonderful i wanted to have you on for a long time and i want to thank you for being on the podcast
1: oh you're welcome and i hope to have a book and an album out soon we'll see that'd be great let me be
0: that was my conversation with prudence priest we will have links to her website in the bio next week we will have guest Britt sankula sinclair who is a death doula among other things. We'll be talking with her next week. Until then, you all have a blessed week.